G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the Round 13 Review Edition as we uh, finish what has been a pretty massive few days of football, both in terms of the games and news. And uh, it's not done yet either because still one game to finish off this round, which will be played Monday evening, of course, Collingwood. North Melbourne, and we will have a full preview of that game after we review this round nearly finished. As I say, a very good evening to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Finey? Yeah, I'm well. Give or take a, a nail-biting finish up at the Gabba, but uh, no, no, going well. Well, it was uh, certainly an exciting game. One of those we'll drill down on in some detail and a pretty eventful round in various ways. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what we should drill down on too, Finey, before we start, and it's a big, juicy hamburger. Where would I get one? <laughs> oh, you can get juicy hamburgers probably in a few places, but the best hamburger, juicy it is, and fresh and still beautiful. I was there on the weekend, Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Oh, they're a good burger, Rowan. Oh, I, we do wax lyrical, but I actually had one on the weekend, this weekend, and boy, oh boy, are they good, mate. That's, I'm telling you, they're worth getting. Hopefully, you live in the 5K radius, and if you don't, in three weeks, we, fingers crossed, we'll get out of lockdown four, and you can make a, a vigil there, because they are a beautiful burger, Rowan. I tell you, I, they certainly, I'm salivating as we speak. I'll tell you what else is beautiful. The home renovations from our favourite renovators. Finally, tell us about them. West Point Properties, Nick Spartels, big football connection. Uh, Dyson Heppel's home, Scott Pendlebury's home, Mike Sheehan's home. On the tools, learning the building trade, Luke Ball and his brother-in-law, Goose Maguire, Matthew Maguire. Yeah, here's something interesting about Maguire. He played 99 games for St Kilda and um, I've met him and I said, oh, you'll probably have sons who are brilliant at footy. He goes, well, actually, I've got daughters, not sons. So does Luke Ball. So does Tony Lockett. So does Nathan Burke, whose daughter is expected to go father daughter for St Kilda in the AFLW draft. But, um, yeah, he finished on 99 games. Do you know which two other St Kilda players finished their careers on 99 games? I don't, off the top of my head, no. Who one, were they? One plays for the Bulldogs at the moment, Josh Bruce, and the other is one of the most famous names in the history of football. And not only did he play 99 for St Kilda, he also played 99 for South Melbourne. Up there... Uh, Roy Cazale. Okay. Yep. Imagine that. If he had sons under the father-son rule, they couldn't play for either of the clubs he played for, but he played 99 games for both. Anyhow, West Point Properties, Nick Bartel's brilliant, big football connection, all the way back to Roy Cazale. 
Well, and looking forward to that St Kilda AFLW team uh, a few years down the track. They will be very potent indeed from the sounds of it. All right. Well, before we get into the uh, reviews of round 13 tonight, um, we're going to just break with uh, normal routine here because uh, there's a story breaking today, which I think is really significant. And it's one we need to talk about as soon as possible. And that is um, a remarkable piece of journalism today on the ABC website website by Russell Jackson, uh, one of this country's finest sports writers. And it is the story of Robert Muir, who played for St Kilda in the 1970s and 1980s. You've probably at some stage seen some footage of Robert Muir. Um, and uh, the footage is always the same. It's basically of him going off his crew and punching blokes and uh, showing his annoyance at uh, umpiring decisions, uh, you name it. Um, uh, it was certainly cast in a very one-dimensional uh, sort of way. And uh, that is partly what this story addresses, but it primarily addresses the in indescribably sad life he's been forced to lead um, through just repeated instances of racism. Uh, there was abuse at the hands of his father. Um, he's had a terrible time, uh, particularly in the last 20 or so years with uh, alcoholism, um, suicide attempts, bouts of homelessness. Um, and you read this story, which chronicles some of the things that he's been subjected to. And it really, in a way, sadly, comes as no surprise. But what is a surprise, I think, in retrospect, and I'm sure a lot of people in football felt this way after reading it, was why have we not known the extent of this stuff for as long as um, it's it's been part of his story? And the saddest answer is that I think we weren't, curious enough to ask the questions because it was easy to paint this guy as a almost a circus act uh, a stereotypical uh, man who inherited the nickname mad dog and it covers that territory too I mean this is a a nickname he got saddled with that he feels terribly aggrieved by and he wants to lose and hopefully now he will um, but some of the episodes that he's had to endure at various football clubs, not just at St Kilda, uh, are just disgraceful and, and the sort of stuff that actually makes you feel ashamed that you yourself, and I'm, I'm putting myself in this category, might have been part of the football industry at a time when these things were just shrugged off and, you know, the response was, oh, yeah, Robbie, Mad Dog Muir. Well, I know I'm looking at him differently after reading this incredible story today. I mean, how do you feel after having read it, Fine? Uh, I think I've got a, a very different view of Robert Muir, having met him post his football career, probably in the depths of um, some of the serious troubles that he was enduring, because uh, uh, there was no doubt that he was an alcoholic by the time I had met him. But I made a beeline for him, actually, at a football function. I think it was an AFL function um, at Crown Casino because Robert Muir was a hero of mine as a footballer. You see, the, the rest of the world, and, and I absolutely hated references to him as Mad Dog Muir. 
I was at Victoria Park as a young teenager when Ray Shaw spat on him and he, he struck Ray Shaw. And be under no illusions, that's exactly what happened. Uh, it, it was a ball up about 25 metres from the Collingwood Orson Kilda goal. It was at the um, at Robert Rush stand-in. I remember it quite clearly because it was a stoppage and Muig just went and whacked him and came out afterwards, certainly within club circles, uh, what Ray Shaw had done and never really owned up to it. And I think now it's time for Ray Shaw, in fact, the Collingwood Football Club to come and um, come clean about not only their attitude to Robert Muir, but their attitude to Indigenous people uh, right up to the present day, to be honest. Um, anyhow, that's another issue. You see, Robert Muir was a brilliant footballer, uh, Rowan. I used to go to reserve games. And I saw him kick seven goals for our reserves before he played seniors. Well, and I, well, well just let me chip in there because that, that yeah. was 1984, correct? Nine, and, he started in 1974. Yeah, no, but the, the, there was a, yeah, a, one, of the, no, one, he, of the episode, one of the episodes this story documents is a reserves game he played in 1984. Yeah, and that there's was actually, there, well, there's actually pictures of that game where he yeah. was being racially taunted by Geelong senior players whilst he was playing in the reserves, yep. stuck stuck his fingers up at them and did the Nicky Winmar type gesture, taking off his jumper and holding it up to them after the end of that game. This is in 1984. This is nine years before the Winmar incident. And yet yep. it passed without a murmur. Yeah. yeah. Look, you see, Robert Muir was... Um, he was... He was victimised for his colour and also for a perception of how he played football. So that whole mad dog tag hung over him and it really it, it really stymied a great career. You see, he started in 74. That was really the start of the demise of the St Kilda Football Club, you know, uh, the first year that they hadn't played finals. You know, they played in 72, 73, it was the start of the of the fall from grace that would last almost two decades. And as a young supporter, Robert Muir was an absolute um, shining beacon because he had huge ability. You know, the wing was such an important position and he was powerful, fast. He could leap, he could kick. And Really, in, in he's, he broke in in 74, 75, 76. He played nearly every game. So he, he got to around 50 games very quickly. He was a champion. And I hated references to him as being anything other than a footballer. When he wasn't playing, we missed him as a footballer. And you know that his last ever game was that game in 1984 where against Carlton. And there's famous footage of him Losing his cool. Throwing his mouth guard on the ground to yeah. Kevin, Kevin Smith. Smith. Kevin he, Smith was appalling. He got reported the, seven times. In that I game. was in the Hawthorne stand that day and I got kicked out because of my reaction to that incident. I went, I went off my nut and I got escorted out by ground staff. Kevin Smith got in his personal space. A lot is said about Carberry and, and uh, Phil Carmen. 
This was just as provocative. In fact, most of his ire was aimed at Val Perovic because he felt he was mates with Perovic when Perovic played for St Kilda and he felt betrayed that Perovic would stand by, even though Perovic wasn't party to it, whilst other players were hurling racist epithets at him. You know, and he and he sort of took it out on Perovic. Smith got in his personal space, and that was the end of his career. But you know, this is a bloke that could play football and was um, really. He, you're right. He became a sideshow act, and he was his career was truncated because of perception. But the the yeah, absolutely. And and this I think is the point, the main point of this piece is about the lack of support and the lack of understanding he received along the journey. Oh, yeah. And 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 not just at St Kilda, at, at, when he was playing in Ballarat, he got rubbed out for two and a half years on a trumped up kicking charge. Um, he subsequent to St Kilda went and played for Woodville under Malcolm Blight. And uh, when they played West Torrens, with whom he'd previously played, he got abused all day, ended up jumping the fence and taking on a spectator and got sacked from Woodville as a result. This is also still happening long after his career finished. And there's a a well-documented stunt that the footy show pulled in 1997 where they got Robbie Muir on and he was asked to ham it up and start swearing his head off. And then when they were uh, part of a stunt was they kicked him off the show and he then tips over the desk. And uh, this was played as a supposed previous highlight on the show, even though it had, for their hundredth episode, even though it had never actually happened. Um, the audience wasn't let in on the uh, on the joke or joke in inverted commas. Um, Sam Newman, Eddie Maguire both reacted with mock horror. Um, and subsequent to that, uh, all hell broke loose. He went out on a bender, got arrested for public drunkenness. Um, was charged with assaulting one of the arresting officers. And you look at that in retrospect and you think, well, he's been taken advantage of here. Now, it's interesting today that one of the uh, people associated with the footy show, Ralph Horowitz, who was uh, the executive producer. Now, uh, I don't want this to be seen as, you know, an attack on Ralph Horowitz, but Ralphie, on the one hand, has tweeted out this story today and said, this is terrible what happened to Robert Muir. But then, on the other hand, has been totally unapologetic about the footy show also treating him like a circus act. And he is justifying that by saying, well, I was with him. I was there. He was happy about it. And I'm not denying that for a second, Ralphie, if you get around to hearing this. But we have to be able to look back. And yes, it was 20 years ago. And yes, maybe they were different times, even though I'd point out it was four years after the Winmar incident. But we have to look at that now and say, yeah, we, we all indulge this. I'm looking at it myself and going, well, I've only ever seen him as Mad Dog Muir, the guy who did his nut and who belted Dennis Collins in that last game in 1978. And I've never taken the time to say to myself, why was he like that? And being curious enough, even as a journalist, to go and actually investigate his story. And Russell Jackson has that. And I'll tell you what, if that story doesn't win a series of awards, there's something wrong even more wrong with journalism than I thought. But what I'm saying here is it's okay, Ralph, to say, but it was okay at the time. Well, maybe 
at the time it seemed okay, but it's not okay. We can't exploit people's vulnerabilities. However, whatever ratings it gets your show and however much fun even that person says it is, because you know what? There was a lot of stuff going on underneath that fun veneer. And I think that's the point that comes through strikingly in this piece, that poor Robert Muir lacked the support to be able to actually stand up and say, I don't want to be portrayed like this. So he ends up sort of recreating that myth as well or recreating that stereotype. This is where we have to get better as a, as a sport and as a society is to be able to put ourselves in, in these positions and empathise with what these people have gone through and take the time to understand the enormous pain that, in his case, he was dealing with. And that's what I want to say about the reaction to this story today. We've all got to continue learning. We've got to actually put in the hard yards to try to see things from the Indigenous perspective. So it's okay in Sir Doug Nichols' rounds to go, oh, don't they, you know, isn't it wonderful looking at the, the crowd up at T.O. Oval and, uh, gee, uh, don't Indigenous players play some pretty attractive football? We've got to look at the bad stuff too. And what's become really clear to me today is that footy has had an enormous amount of racism and we've got better at confronting it, but we've still got to deal with it. We've got to actually own what we did and make sure that we get better at dealing with it. And to that end, Rowan, you know, there's somebody mentioned in that article, just not in a, in a negative light, just uh, as an interesting sort of um, footnote that he was born in Ballarat uh, within days or weeks of Mick Malthouse. Yes. Who was born in Ballarat at the time. And I don't know what, and then it said how Mick Malthouse has gone on to become, you know, uh, a storied person in the AFL and, and Robert, you know, is a, is a, as sort of a, uh, laughed at piece of, you know, history from biffs and big hits. Uh, I want to say something about Mick Malthouse and about football racism that predates Robbie and sadly, again, happened at the St Kilda Football Club. There was another Ballarat footballer, an Indigenous footballer, who played uh, before Robert Muir and, like Robert Muir, had two stints at the football club and his name was Eric Clark. And he only played a handful of, I think, five or six senior games. But he was very talented, war number 44. And I've interviewed Eric. And sadly, Eric Clark, upon arriving at St Kilda, uh, full of great hope and talent, um, was really, amongst his own team and teammates, um, set aside and racially vilified and he didn't want to play for St Kilda. Now he got a lift, that's when players still lived in Ballarat and trained at Moorabbin and he got a lift down every training night to training and from training from Mick Malthouse and he said it was only Mick who reached out to him and it was his words of encouragement and driving him to be more determined that kept him from leaving the club within weeks of arriving. Mm. And 
he credits Mick Malthouse with being the person that kept him, kept his football dream alive and let him play some senior football. And he spoke so highly of Mick, who came from very poor backgrounds himself, Mick Malthouse in Ballarat, as being the one person when he arrived at St Kilda, and he would have arrived there in 72, I think, or 70, 72 or 73, as the only person at St Kilda who didn't see him as a black person. And Eric Clark's story is even just as tragic because he should have played a lot of football and wasn't picked because he was a black man. Now, that's I'm not blaming Alan Jeans. I'm just saying that, you know, he was on the outer the day he walked in there. And, you know, it's a sad part of St Kilda's history and, and one that um, he that they I think I believe they corrected over time and, and and have gone some ways today to correct even more because I believe the St Kilda Football Club is reaching out and so are the AFL to Robert Muir in a meaningful way, as they should. You know, this indigenous round, I I, I you know, I don't need to hear um, people with very poor history in this space waxing lyrical about Gilbert McAdam and, and Nicky Winmar as though they're the only two Indigenous players to have played for St Kilda. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm, well, not interested. I'm not interested in it. I'm yeah. not interested in, 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 that, in that superficial, public, glossy um, uh, view from, you know, from, from the same parapet that spouted the racial epithets only, you know, a couple of years ago. I don't want to hear that view. Robert, right. Muir, Robert Muir was a great Indigenous player for St Kilda. And there were others, you know. Jimmy Cracker, by the way, played against Collingwood with those two players. Not that year, but the previous year. And got absolutely, played for St Kilda and got spat on when he left the ground. Get, find out from Phil Cracker what he and Jimmy went through, if you want to hear a disgraceful tale from the outer and from within the boundaries of how they were racially vilified. All right. We've got to, uh, we've got to get into the game yeah. review. But yeah. You, yeah. you just touched on a point that I, I want this discussion to finish on. And that is that I think Sir Douglas Nichols' brand is great. And it's great to celebrate everything that Indigenous culture has given the game and given Australian society. But it can't just be that shallow, you know, look, look at all the good stuff without acknowledging the shit stuff. And uh, today is a salient reminder that there's been a lot of shit stuff in the game. And, and ask yourself this, you know, if football is just a microcosm of Australian culture and, uh, you know, we're, we've probably appreciated Indigenous culture more in a football context than in other walks of life, if even foot, Indigenous footballers had to put up with that sort of crap, ask yourself what Indigenous people in general have put up with over the journey and let's actually learn from it and let's actually be better as a result of it. All right. I think we should uh, review the games. Let's do that now. On Footyology, wrap around. Okay, round 13 kicked off up in Darwin on Friday evening in very, very difficult conditions, it's fair to say. Uh, but 
Carlton certainly handled them well, if not necessarily their opponent, Gold Coast. And this game finished up in a pretty comfortable 33-point win to the Blues. Very inaccurate kicking. Uh, could have been by a lot more this win. Seven goals, 18-60, defeating the Suns. Four goals, three. 27, the goals uh, for the Blues, Gibbons, two, Mackay, two, singles to Betts, Kerno and Nunes. Only four goals for the Suns. They were uh, one each to Flanders, Lemons, Rankin and Weller. Um, and, uh, oh, let's be honest, the Blues did this on the bit, didn't they, Finey? Uh, already uh, four goals plus up at half time, and just a holding mission after that. In fact, each side only kicking two goals. In the second half, it was a pretty poor spectacle in what were very, very greasy conditions. But the Blues would be pretty happy to get the points. And again, um, I guess under underscore their development this year. They are turning into uh, a pretty reasonable combination. And if they're not playing finals this year, I reckon they'll start reasonably warm favourites to play them next year. How do you see this going? Yeah, credit to Carlton that their professionalism which has definitely taken a big step forward this year, made this a pretty ordinary game to watch because it was a no contest by quarter time. Gold Coast hadn't scored, took them half of the second quarter to score. They were only two goals straight at half time, which is pretty appalling or pretty brilliant from a Carlton perspective. And it was brilliant from a Carlton perspective. They simply monstered the discussion uh, they got very good service out of Mark Murphy. I'm not always a fan, but I, he kept his nose to the grindstone and really played well. Look, a great thing for Carlton was, I don't think, um, and I don't know whether the AFL were able to force themselves from naming Patrick Cripps, but I certainly don't think he was in their best six players. And they won without his contribution uh, being a major one. Great returns from... Uh, Murphy, Nunes followed up the goal with something more meaningful, which was a really good game off half-forward flank, as Gibbons is proving a very handy forward pocket. Not Sam, of course, Rob. Michael yes, Gibbons. Michael, got my head around that now. But uh, he's really been a, a strikingly good pickup, given that he came in the mid-season draft last... No, he didn't come in the mid-season draft, did he? He came via... I think a rookie draft and Harry Mackay, if not for inaccurate kicking would have put lied to the fact that every other player on the ground found the ball slippery because he was taking one grab marks and it didn't, it didn't take away from his marking, but I guess he didn't cap it off with what forwards need to do and kick a bag to be remembered by. I thought it was great. Harry Mackay. What do you reckon? Yeah. Look, great pair of hands and he and Casbolt, uh, both have fantastic hands and, you know, they've got the the foundations for a, a really potent forward set up for a fair while. Uh, if um, Charlie Kerno comes back as well, they'll have an embarrassment of tools. Really, Gibbons is working well at their feet. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be dismissing any bets either. It's any time a, a guy on the wrong side of 30 plays a couple of poor games, you get that talk and it's happening again with Eddie Betts, but I still think he's capable of producing plenty of valuable football for the Blues. Their midfield looks deeper. Um, their defence, I mean, Jacob Wiedering's had an outstanding season. Got to be very, very strongly in all Australian contention. So, 
Uh, they've got more prospects bobbing up than they've had for a long, long time. It's, uh, you know, I mean, this is the most meaningful campaign Carlton has mounted, I think, since they were, uh, I don't know, you'd have to go back to 2011, I think, when they were a kick away from playing in the preliminary final. So um, great times for the Blues. You'd be absolutely wrapped if you're a Carlton supporter at the moment, I think. We need to talk briefly about the Suns too, because we did mention this on uh, Footyology Final Siren on Friday night, but for all the obvious improvement, and there's plenty of it, uh, the bottom line with them is that they've won one of their last nine games and are starting to look like a win-loss uh, scoreline that looks pretty similar to the previous couple of seasons. Uh, and they're clearly a better side than they were then, but you know, this side has to start converting promise into results far more regularly. Yeah, look, the one asterisk um, is that they're without Matt Rowell. And he was so good in his first, what was it, four games of football, he had already become a, an elite AFL midfielder, a, a match winner, a goal-kicking bull out of the midfield that can play with some outside dash as well. I mean, he, he I, I can't think of a more impressive start to an AFL career, really. And that includes the likes of Chris Judd, who, who burst on the scene. And I wasn't around for Coleman, but <laughs> I'm talking about the modern midfielder. Mm. And you just get a sense that had he not got injured, some of those losses definitely would have been wins, the close ones. So there's your asterisk. But it's a lot easier to lose than it is to win by small margins, big margins, and medium margins. And they've got a bad habit that they need to get out of, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I hope they can sort of turn this around in the last few games because otherwise for all the, the hype, um, early season hype, we, we're going to end up with, for all intents and purposes, a, a pretty similar scoreline. And I think they're a better side than that. Uh, it would be a pity if their season finished in those sort of circumstances. For the Blues, upwards... And onwards. All right, uh, that was Friday night. Let's talk about Saturday. First game on Saturday came early Saturday afternoon at Metricon Stadium between the Western Bulldogs and Melbourne. And in the end, uh, a pretty impressive victory to the Bulldogs by 28 points, 12 goals, 8 80, defeating the Demons. 7 10 52. In fact, it was Melbourne leading by seven points at half time. But finally, this was a game won in a very impressive burst of six goals to nothing in the third term by the Bulldogs. Five of those goals coming in a 15 minute period, and two of those five goals coming to a man reborn as a small goal kicking pressure forward. Mitch Wallace thought he was terrific in this game. Four goals to him. Skipper Marcus Bontempelli, really good for the Bulldogs as well, who besides Wallace, all single goal kickers. For Melbourne, two goals to Sam Wiedemann, singles the rest. But, uh, yeah, the Bulldog midfield, really impressive. Uh, Bontempelli, terrific. thought Tom Liberatore played an outstanding game, particularly in the first half. So did Lockie Hunter. And so did East Melbourne's finest mullet, Bailey Smith. The whole midfield contingent on song for the Doggies. But they were also really good coming off halfback, particularly in that third quarter. Created a lot of run through the agency of Bailey Williams and Hayden Crozier in that third quarter as well. Uh, Jason Johannesson getting in on the act as well. Melbourne, really disappointing in one 
area in particular, I thought, and that was the capacity or inability, seemingly, of their forward set up to exert much defensive pressure at all, which allowed the Bulldogs to just ping-pong the ball out of that uh, defensive 50 and inside 50 where they got some scores. But the Melbourne key defenders had too much work to do as well. Stephen May did uh, pretty well on uh, Aaron Norton and Jake Weaver uh, very well on Josh Bruce, but that wasn't enough for them. Uh, they threw Tim English forward. At one stage, they had Josh Dunkley doing the ruck work uh, up against Braden Proust, which was pretty interesting. But the Bulldogs found a way. And when they get that uh, link-up and handball game going, finally, they're pretty hard opponent to control. And that's certainly what the Demons found out. It enabled the Bulldogs to uh, snare a spot in the eight and uh, throw the Demons out temporarily. And uh, that inconsistency, we thought we might have uh, seen them hit a, a bit of a vein of form, but uh, that was rudely interrupted. Uh, alternately, the Bulldogs, they've struggled recently, but got a bit of confidence back last week against the Crows. And I thought you saw the benefits of that in this win. Uh, they look pretty impressive, I thought, and uh, a more likely side to give finals a serious shake than the Demons, I would conclude, after this win. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, because they've got firepower. Aaron Norton didn't uh, hit the heights that he hit in his return game, but uh, he can be relied upon, I think, as uh, he gets a few games under his belt to be a meaningful force in the finals. As you say, young uh, Wallace, Mitchie Wallace, he's really crafted a, a position for himself. It's not quite small forward because there's a bit of marking involved. It's that sort of mid-size forward and he tackles well. He's pretty ferocious without the ball. He's a good kicker goal. And he's putting the score on the board and applying pressure. That's what you want from your uh, forwards, whether they be big, small, or somewhere in between. Look, at half time, Melbourne probably would have been pretty happy with how the game was running. It was a bit of a scrap, and their midfield was winning a few of the arguments. It took about how long? 20 seconds for Bontempelli to wipe out that half-time lead with a goal almost directly after half-time. And that almost seemed to uh, be the signal for Melbourne to get on their sort of back on their heels. There was a bit of a wind, which was unusual in modern football. But I don't know, they just seemed to really go into a defensive shell uh, playing like back-to-the-wall football and, and they provided very little in that third quarter. Well, obviously they did. They got outscored six goals to nothing. You know, there could have been a turning point in that quarter, Rowan. Do you see what Lucas Vandermeer tried to do? Uh, you know, that, just refresh my memory. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, on the, uh, the wing closest to the cameras. Yeah. For no good reason. He got caught holding the ball and Melbourne had a shot at goal from that. Now, that could have been a real turning point, but they missed it. Uh, might have been Melksham, who missed a couple. McDonald had a pretty poor game, but uh, he had a shot actually off a strong mark and missed that one. Yeah, they, they had a couple of opportunities to swing the pendulum, but sadly, uh, the game was gone and it sort of just petered out in the last quarter. I think it, they split the honours in the last quarter, but it shows that Bulldogs do have, as you say, 
some real offensive weapons that that could take them not only to the finals but could prove effective in the finals. Melbourne don't have that. So if you were picking one of those teams to carry your you know the weight of your either um, emotional support or financial support, you'd definitely pick doggies for the rest of the season, wouldn't you? You would. I mean, their, their history this season has been that, uh, you know, they've put away sides below them on the ladder pretty effectively, haven't been able to deal with sides above them. To that end, uh, the next two weeks are going to tell the tale. I think they've got Geelong and West Coast. So yep. it, does, it doesn't come a lot tougher than that, albeit West Coast at Metricon Stadium, which will be a help. They finish off with the Hawks. So they're going to start favourite probably, in only, well, definitely in only one of those three games. So uh, it's going to be tough to hang on to. But if they can bring the sort of footy they played in that third quarter across four quarters, they're going to at least be a show, I think. Melbourne... Uh, well, a bit more problematic for them. Like you say, they don't have that same sort of reliability, I think, of goal kickers that uh, we probably see with the Western Bulldogs in terms of the draw. Um, they're probably going to start favourite in two of those games. I think they've got Sydney and they've got uh, Frio and then they've got GWS in the last game. Interestingly, the Swans and the Dockers both in Cairns at... Um, Kazali Stadium, so that'll test them. I think and uh, they've got Kilda next week at, in Darwin. Oh, they have too. Sorry, I missed one of those games. You're right, they have. Um, so yeah, look, it's it's going to be hard for them to get there. I would have thought. All right, uh, good win for the doggies. That was the afternoon game. Let's talk about the twilight game. Well, Port Adelaide taking on Hawthorne. This was a game I think most people thought was going to be a pretty comfortable romp to the finish line by the power, but turned out to be anything but. Uh, Hawthorne gave a, a really spirited performance, one I think that despite not taking the points, given uh, the sort of personnel they were missing and where they're at in terms of uh, form and confidence, it was a pretty good show from the Hawks, who went down by 10 points in the finish. Port Adelaide, nine goals, 14-68. Uh, winning by 10 behinds, as a matter of fact. Hawthorne, nine goals, four, 58. Two goals to Dixon, two to Zach Butters, including the final goal of the game, which clinched the win. Singles the rest uh, for the Hawks, two to Wingard and two to Burgoyne. Interestingly, two former Port Adelaide players singles the rest for them but uh this is a real struggle for the power finally they uh really um well they trailed Hawthorne by a couple of goals and it possibly could have been more a quarter time they got their nose in front by the long break but uh only three goals in the second half to the power in fact outscored by the Hawks in uh the second half um and it's just the that sort of running, fast, attacking game they were playing just seems to have been stymied a little bit. I'm just wondering if opponents have sort of worked them out to a degree and they're finding not only scoring, but their whole ball movement, they're finding it a lot tougher task than it was just a few short weeks ago. What do you make of this one? Well, don't, don't worry about the result. Port Adelaide are struggling for form at the moment. They obviously got soundly beaten by Geelong uh, and their response in the game against Hawthorne was anything but um, conclusive, wasn't it? 
scores were level at three-quarter time. And like a, a, a fighter just copping a belting and hanging out for that belter ring, that three-quarter time siren could not have come quick enough for Port Adelaide. They were dead set on the ropes. Now, they they regrouped and were able to at least put a defensive hold on Hawthorne that meant that even though Port Adelaide still didn't find their scoring rhythm in the last quarter, whatever they scored was sort of going to be good enough because they did get their shape back. And let's be honest, Hawthorne, you know, <laughs> they've cop some um, sort of injury blows and form blows as the seasons rolled on. And, you know, a lot, a lot was made of Sicily missing the rest of the year, but they also lost Jay Gromira from last week as well. So that impacted on their midfield. Warple played really well for them. Hanrahan actually showed a bit in that third quarter. Looked very lively, quite fast Hanrahan. Maybe they can exploit that in weeks and years to come or use that. Ultimately, Port Adelaide are in a bit of a funk. They found a way to win. Ken Hinckley knows that. I wonder what, you know, they miss Laddams. He he had mm. sort of uh, developed into a bit of a powerhouse, hadn't he? Yeah. And, you know, it, sort of that vibrancy in the ruck was gone. They were just slogging it out there with life set. But, yeah, that's a bit of a loss for them. And, and you know, that, that whole saga would have been a bit of a setback for the club during the week and they did, certainly didn't shrug it off against Hawthorne but they got the four points and they live to fight another day from the top of the ladder which is a nice view. How do you think Hawthorne will assess this performance? I mean given uh, where they were and they copped a bit of a critical caning about guys apparently laughing too much in, in last week's loss but uh, you couldn't fault their effort in this game and look they, they've turned up a few uh, decent prospects, I think. Day is probably almost the biggest plus out of this year for them. I thought Cousins was pretty reasonable for them. Scrimshaw was okay. So it's not it's not a season where all is lost for them. No, no. And they've got the, um, the not only the right coach to build on a, a base of young talent, but also a, a club that, you respect them greatly. So does anybody of our vintage because they have been the preeminent club of our lifetime. And just even watching them on Saturday afternoon, you know, when the brown and gold put their nose to the grindstone, I don't care really who's out there. They're a hard team to beat. You, you, you don't ever uh, take a win for Hawth- against Hawthorne for granted, do you? Not, not in our lifetime. No and, they, no. and they sort of played true to that reputation. So, I think that they, as a football club, have have um, such a, a a store of of self belief and of responding in situations like this that the rebound is likely and it's likely to be quicker than most people think. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree, and we've sort of become used to that. That when they are down, they're not down for long. Uh, what uh, chance Port Adelaide is staying at the top, do you think? Oh, they've got a good draw. They could stay at the top, but I think the fourth team wouldn't mind playing them, especially if it was in Brisbane. Yeah, well, they've got a, they've got a reasonable percentage break on Brisbane, who are second. But um, as you say, they've got, they've got their challenges ahead, haven't they? They've got uh, 
Well, they got three three games. No, they got four games left. They got the Swans. They've got uh, Kangaroos and Essendon. Actually, are you sure their draws that bad? It, it doesn't look too bad at all to me. They've got a good draw. They'll finish on top. Save it again. Sorry. I said they've got a good draw. Oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Um, no, I said they'll finish on top, but the team who finishes fourth might not be that scared of them. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think that's a fair summation. All right, uh, that is the Twilight game. Uh, the Dreamtime game played for the first time in Darwin. Let's talk about that one. All right, the Dreamtime game. This is a fixture that has been dominated by Richmond in recent times. In fact, all Richmond Essendon clashes have been dominated by the Tigers. They were going for a 10th straight win over the Bombers, and they got it. Uh, not without a fight, though, although how much that was due to, admittedly, an improved Essendon, but also their own wastefulness um, is a point of conjecture. In fact, they've ended up winning this game not just by 12 points, but in fact by 12 behinds. The final scores, Richmond 10-13, 73 defeating a far more accurate Essendon, 10 goals, 1-61. Two goals to Lynch and two goals to Rewalt for the Tigers. For Essendon, two goals to McDonald, Tip and Woody, two goals to Stewart and two goals to the very, very exciting debutante, Irving Mosquito. Uh, No doubt from an Essendon perspective, he was the highlight. Uh, Richmond, though, finally absolutely dominated this game in terms of raw numbers. Just kept blowing their opportunities, though, and uh, a bit of controversy in this game, too, with um, both Dylan Grimes and Nick Floston being subsequently fined for or what in soccer they call uh, simulation, what we are calling uh, the even less flattering term of staging. How would you see this game? Yeah, look, I mean, the scoreline sort of um, is not dissimilar to the Hawthorne-Port Adelaide game, but very different game because in the Hawthorne-Port Adelaide game, it was level at three-quarter time. Essendon were always sort of chasing the tail, weren't they? Um, And Richmond had put a fairly sizable gap on them in the third quarter. Uh, Essendon played the game out bravely, but I don't feel that it was ever in any doubt as to which way the game would go. Richmond are just, they're like 10% off. They, they're doing a lot of things right. They're, they're swarming. Their forward line is applying pressure. They are getting most of the things right, but not everything right, and certainly not finishing off their work as efficiently as they need to, to win every game for the rest of the season and firm themselves as favourites for the flag by finishing in the top four. They they need to put an exclamation mark on work further up the field. I thought Martin was far less influential than he had been in sort of previous weeks. So well done, Essendon, on that score. I'm really impressing. I'm really liking Sam Draper, what he brings, whether it's physical attack on the ball following up his own ruck work or getting back and filling the hole and taking good marks. I think his decision-making is really good. He knows when to tackle, knows when to bump, knows when to mark. I like him. I like him a lot. Um, Essendon... How do you like the other ruckman? Less less so. (laughs) um, Because he's not quite mobile enough. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. 
Yeah, but it needs to be rucking. He can't be running around on the flanks like he was. Um, you know, Essendon, they put in a good shift, but their forward line desperately needs a, a genuine goal kicker, doesn't it? Uh, Stringer kicked a goal. I think he only kicked one. Kicked one late. But he's... I, I, I reckon he might have... I don't know whether he... he actually, he... he he was involved in a chase early in the game, which meant he was fully fit, but he just didn't get involved in the game. No, no, pick- he was very short of a, a gallop. Oh, look, I, yeah. I thought I thought this there was positives and negatives out of this for us. And the, the obvious positive yeah. was the, the effort was a heap better than it had been against St Kilda. I yeah. think, um, you know, you, you, Draper, I thought, was really encouraging Mosquito. Was really, I mean, I looked at Mosquito, what he was doing early, and I just went, well, why wasn't he in the side early in the season? You know, I mean, this is a side that patently lacks spark. Yeah. And uh, he could have delivered some of that. And again, it comes back to this very conservative selection policy that I think has been an issue for Essendon for a couple of years now. I thought um, you saw some decent signs from Guelphie. But uh, yeah, I thought Guelphie's a good kick. Yeah, yeah look, He's okay, but he, he's just – this is symptomatic to me of where Essendon is. They're just stuck with a lot of okay players, but they're, they're not going to launch you in a meaningful assault on a finals campaign. How and about the, Langford? Oh. Well, uh, yeah, no, he's definitely a plus out of this season. Yeah, right yeah. now, he would be among their top three or four players. I thought he was good. Yeah, well, he's good. But again – He's got. He's a solid player. He's not a match winner. I look. I really like Wingford. Don't get me wrong, but he's not going to win you a flag. And I think the the worrying sign about this, uh, and further evidence to me that this list is a long way off, and they need to really make some honest decisions about what this group of players is capable of, is the fact that three of their best players were Merritt, Smith, who played easily his best game of the season. Um, McGrath again every week and Parrish. So the 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 bulk of that midfield group have been among Essendon's best players, and yet as a midfield unit, they were smashed. Really, I mean, Shy Bolton, if yeah. he isn't if he's the most improved player in the competition, well, he and Jordan Ridley actually, who was fantastic again for the Bombers. Um, I'll eat my hat, but have a look at the inside fifties: sixty-six to twenty-four. Like, how many games of football are you going to win with 24 inside 50s? Answer, not many. Um, and this is a big issue for Essendon. Like, in, you know, apart from, you know, I've talked at length about the cultural issues, et cetera, et cetera. But apart from anything else, their list isn't good enough. And I don't care who's out of that side injured at the moment, even with those blokes, it's not good enough. And have they got the strength to admit that? I'm not sure that they have. Well, what can they do? They, you know, what was it? Who who wrote the play Waiting for Godot? Is your wait, wait, one of the great Ibsen or something? Henrik Ibsen, maybe. One of those. Uh, Because you're waiting for Danaher, but that bus ain't coming, I don't think. No, Uh, I'm increasingly beginning to agree with you on that one. Samuel Samuel Beckett, by the way, is the answer. Samuel Beckett? Yeah. I knew he was a good man. The that do they make a big play for Ben Brown? Uh, 
Jer- Jeremy Cameron. No, nah, we'll see. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, look, there are issues all over the ground now. I mean, yeah, for the forward line's an issue, but defence is an issue too because Kyle Hooker and Michael Hurley are both the wrong end of their careers. Have they got guys to replace them in those key spots? I'm not sure they have. Um, you know, the, well, midfi- the midfielders... Zerk's back up, is he... Yeah, yeah, look, I mean, he's young. He shows a bit of promise, but we really don't know yet. Yep. And, and yeah, look, yeah, I, I don't want to get bogged down talking about the Bombers too long again. But, uh, yeah, look, Richmond got the job done in the end. Need to improve, no doubt about that. But I'm, I'm pretty confident they will. Uh, and I'm also pretty confident Essendon won't be playing any part in this final series. Um, all right, that was Saturday evening. One or two games on Saturday evening. Let's talk about the other one. Well, the second Saturday evening game was over in Perth and uh, not one you probably want to watch again uh, unless you're part of the Freo coaching group because let's be honest about it, in entertainment terms, this was a stinker. And it was won very comfortably by the Dockers in the finish by 31 points against a side that managed two goals for the entire game. Seven goals, 850 Fremantle, two goals, seven, 19 points, the Swans. They kicked a goal in the opening term and their second goal came in the final term and bugger all in between. In fact, just two behinds across the second and third quarters. Uh, the goals, only one multiple goal kicker in this game. That was Matt Tabiner for the Dockers with two singles. Everyone else, um, four goals to one at half time. Uh, look, Frio, I, I don't want to talk down their efforts. Um, they certainly won the game convincingly enough in the finish. And again, another plus for Justin Longmuir in, in his rebuilding of their list because as we've said a number of times this season they've never been less than competitive and in the back half of the season they've um, been able to parlay that competitiveness into some meaningful results and I think uh, look they're not going to be part of um, finals this season but I think the future for the Dockers uh, (laughs) is going to look considerably brighter than a lot of people thought it might at the start of this season do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. It's no mean feat. Look, I know on on face value, it looks as though they've played against a fairly uh, impotent Sydney Swans and just, you know, scored well and truly enough to uh, meet out of victory. But don't forget, at the same ground last week, Sydney had a very good win over the GWS and it was a pretty um, hard-fought first half. Fremantle just got on top and did so very professionally in the second half. And you know what? If not for that Jack Nunes kick, which should have been a, a Gibbons kick from 10 metres further back, maybe they would be a chance to make the eight, Rowan. Yes. <laughs> that was the most pregnant pause I've ever heard, Fonny. What were you doing then? I actually thought we'd lost you. Uh, yeah, mate. I don't think it was that long a pause. So (laughs) maybe you did lose me. Uh, All right, maybe I did. Uh, Well, were it not for the Jack Nunes kick, um, they would have, we'd be talking about a side which had won six of its last eight games. So yeah, yeah. uh, uh, they're they're a much sturdier proposition they were. I think um, the other positive for them is the fact that, you know, we've talked, and you, I know you've been big on this one early in the season, the dependence upon, 
um, Fife and Walters. And, you know, they're still obviously critical players for them, but I think they've been able to play some decent footy without those two necessarily being huge factors. And they were probably among Frio's best in this game as well. But um, best for the Dockers was Luke Ryan, who's now starting to get the kudos he deserves as a defender. Yep. But Andrew Brayshaw, I think, um, you know, he's playing some pretty good footy too. David Mundy seems to have had a real renaissance. Taberner's an important one as well. Now, he showed some pretty good form last year until he got injured. This year, I think he's had a really solid year and actually looks like a long-term forward prospect for them. So there's plenty of I mean, pluses. This is, with... the, this is the most sustained run he's had at football, injury-wise. And he's a very mobile, strong-marking forward, what the modern game requires. So, you know, his time is now and he's taking it. You don't need to kick, well, it'd be great if you could kick five goals a game, but you can be a pretty serviceable forward in the modern game as long as you kick, you know, have multiple goals every week. It's just a, a pity about the spectacle because, um, I mean, these two sides had a, a low-scoring scrap last year as well. I think that one was seven goals a piece. Free had been wiped by the Swans the previous, I think, three seasons before that. So, um, you know, they've been able to turn that around. But, uh, geez, we're seeing some some ordinary footy, aren't we? I know they're shortened quarters and we're seeing a lot more night footy and maybe conditions are harder in that. But uh, not so much in Perth, you would have thought. But, geez, uh, you know, two goals in a game. Give me a break. It's almost unwatchable. Under 12 score lines, aren't they? They are. And, uh, you know, it doesn't do... Look, I mean, to be fair, I think the Swans are trying to play a a more positive brand of footy. And in the win over GWS, there was plenty of evidence of that. They they look far more dynamic than the Giants did. But, um, you know, it's a young lineup and it's a lineup which can be shut down a lot easier, I I think, uh, than it would be the case were there some of those injured stars that they've missed for much of this year and in Buddy Franklin's case the entire year, uh, were they party to it? In fact, Buddy's a, a good question, isn't he? I mean, he's not going to play at all this season. I wonder if it's possible he might uh, hang him up. Yeah, I mean, he's got how many years to run on his contract? Oh, 25, I think. Yeah. Oh, two, maybe. I don't know. Two or three. But his body, if it fails again, you'd have to say uh, that would, would just about be curtains. I mean, I, I don't think he'll hang them up, but he, hopefully he gets through a pre-season because we can't go through this again. Well, this is season uh, seven for him. So, yeah, two two more he's contracted for. Um, yep. But, yeah, look, I mean, uh, his absence is, <laughs> is always going to be pretty telling, wasn't it? But uh, it's just destroyed them in terms of being able to kick winning scores. All right, a good win to the Dockers, though. They're uh, fifth of this season as they start to turn things around. Um, All right, that is Saturday football. Let's turn our attention to Sunday. Well, there were a couple of games which look like they might be one-sided this weekend. Uh, This was one which, uh, boy, uh, people were talking about cricket scores potentially out of this one with the winless Adelaide up against a Geelong side, which had just disposed in authority fashion over first St Kilda and then Port Adelaide had had disaster written all over it, but not for the first time, didn't pan out like that. A really, really credible performance from Adelaide. 
not necessarily reflected in the uh, margin, unfortunately. It was just blew out in the last oh, five minutes of the game. Geelong getting a few at the end to win by 28 points in the finish. Nine goals, 11-65 to Adelaide's 5-7-37. But like I said, until the final oh, seven or eight minutes of this game, Adelaide's still very much a winning chance. And um, they scrapped it out beautifully. I thought some of the young blokes are pretty impressive. thought uh, Kyle Hardigan played a, a terrific game on Tom Hawkins, and it's a tribute to just how good a form Hawkins is in that he got beaten on the day, but still ended up the leading goal kicker in this game with three. Uh, he got three, Reece Stanley two, and Mitch Duncan two for the Cats, all single goal kickers for the Crows. But they'll be really encouraged by this uh, game today, Finey. I thought the older guys stood up. I thought Matt Crouch was pretty good. Rory Weird was good. But uh, Riley O'Brien in the ruck, pretty impressive for them. And uh, some of the the kids who we've only really seen in action this season, I thought they were really impressive. Uh, I think interesting with the Cats, you know, one of those games where you're expected to win uh, and anything less than a thumping win is seen as you guys being off your game a bit. But um, they got the points. They'll be content with that and just bank the win and get on with the next opponent. What would you make of this one? As, as, look, they were brave. Don't get me wrong. Adelaide got great service out of most of their players in terms of the contest, which was fantastic. But still, their defined problem of not being able to kick more than five goals reared its ugly head again. And whilst it was a brave effort, they never put scoreboard pressure on Geelong. But one thing we can say about Geelong, when, when, it's not, when they can't sort of um, employ plan A, which was in evidence against St Kilda and Port Adelaide, they do chip the ball around a lot, don't they? They can become very static. And we saw that earlier on in the year where they were playing a bit of an unattractive brand of football. And that doesn't help Tom Hawkins, but you're right, Rowan. Kyle Hardigan was fantastic and close to best on ground. Uh, For the Cats, in the end, and Rory Slade had done a really good job on Dangerfield, but he got off the hook, found... Mitch Duncan, who's a beautiful finisher a couple of times and game set match. Hawkins is a hard man to hold, isn't he? As you say, three goals, even though Hardigan played well. The big problem for Adelaide's that forward line. Darcy Fogarty's a bit of a disappointment, isn't he? He doesn't, uh, he, he burst onto the scene, looked like a really powerful, explosive, strong man out of the pocket on the lead and, and somebody who could really use his frame. So he didn't see any of it. Just an observation. Well, an observation on him. I, I can't help but look at him and think that it's like having another Taylor Walker, and maybe yeah. ta- Taylor Walker's presence sort of maybe we'll see. You know, if Tex gives it away or or whatever, maybe we'll see Fogarty sort of you know take over that responsibility. Yeah, I mean Taylor Walker in his two hundredth game had all the intent and applied all the pressure that was the hallmark. And I think that became infectious for the team. So, you know, more power to him. But in the end, he didn't hit the scoreboard or take any marks, did he? So, you know, you can quantify his game in effort and give him an A+. plus, But in output, he's still somewhere around the D-. minus. I'll tell you who's... Ben Crocker was a crocker something today. He, he A couple of times he just didn't, you know 
put in the required effort. And I, I think they can do better than him in the forward line. Maybe they can't. They've played 39 players. They've tried everybody, haven't they? Well, I'll tell you one guy who I thought, oh, why I'm bracketing him with Crocker. I think, well, they got him by similar means. But I, I thought Keys looked okay today. And I, I'm just, gee, how quickly does the wheel in football turn? I mean, I'm just looking down their team list. And, you know, to think the 2017 grand final was still less than three years ago. You know, who'd have thought then that you'd be looking at a side even three seasons later with names like Butts, Crocker, Himmelberg, Jones, Keys, McAdam, O'Brien, Paholke, Schoenberg, Scholl, Stengel. You know, like it's um, it it's boy, it really is. Uh, this really is a rebuild. You know, this isn't a tweak. Um, they really have lost the guts of of what was their strong team. And I think um, you know, sometimes there's a bit of a lag with these things, but you just can't look at you know the Adelaide of 2020 is just an absolutely different side altogether. From uh, so it's no what I'm saying is it's no longer a, a fall from grace. Um, the that fall happened some time ago, and this is a weak side trying to become something more. Uh, but they gave a good fist of it today. I think uh, the effort was certainly there, and that's at least encouraging uh, from that perspective. All Rowan, right. yep. no, you're not. I cannot be deprived. I'm going to have to say it. I like big butts, and you cannot lie. Uh, okay, thanks. He did all right in his debut. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not bad, not bad. He All right. <laughs> All right, let's get on with it. Uh, uh, second game on Sunday, and a big one it was. Well, a lot of us really look forward to this game, two of the more entertaining sides in the AFL to watch. And it was an entertaining game. It was a gripping game, but it certainly wasn't an attacking game. It was uh, a tight and... Uh, Low-scoring affair and a thriller in the finish, just won by a very, very inaccurate Brisbane. And that's certainly one of the storylines out of this game because it's becoming a recurring theme for the Lions. Six goals, 14, 50. Narrow winners over St Kilda, seven goals, six, 48. Two goals to Jared Berry, the only multiple goal kicker for the Lions. Two goals to Dan Butler, St Kilda's only multiple goal kicker. Uh, neck and neck for much of this game. And Brisbane, you know, probably dominated in a lot of areas, but they just wasted so many chances. And I must admit, for much of the last quarter, finally, I thought your Saints were going to get up and teach Brisbane a very, very painful lesson about taking your chances. In the end, they hung on, but, geez, it was a close run thing. Yeah, well... <laughs> You're quite right. Eric Hipwood could not hit the side of a barn today. and His goal kicking was probably uh, uh, symptomatic because he played well. He took some great marks. But that becomes an issue, doesn't it, for Brisbane, where they've just got forwards that are not reliable in front of goal. And, and, and it is a major issue. Uh, have a look at their score lines throughout the season. And it's something that I don't know whether they can address. but it may well cost them a genuine tilt at the Premiership. That being said, St Kilda had the opportunities in the last quarter and 
in the end, Zach Jones had a shot at goal that could have won the game for St Kilda. Max King took a great mark in the last quarter, missed that shot at goal. But, and I, I of course, you can never do this, can you, Rowan? Because if something happens in the first quarter and it costs a team a goal, it does not translate that if you lose the game by less than a goal, you would win, of course. Mm. But so farcical was what Tim Membry did at the start of the game in stopping a ball that was going through for a goal for Rowan Marshall. He stopped it on the line so he could kick it, but then he tripped over Butler who tried to kick it in surely that has to be played to Benny Hill music. And at the time, Bruce McAvaney said, oh, I hope they don't lose by less than a kick. Well, you knew St Kilda was going to lose by less than a kick. Um, Lockie Neal was... Are you sure it was Bruce McAvaney and not Mr Humphreys from Are You Being Served? (laughs) Is is that who you think Bruce has become? Well, I I think someone is telling him to channel Mr Humphreys and uh, it's uh, I'm half expecting Mrs Slocum to bob up with pussy jokes next week. It's uh, Only if she's commentating the Geelong game in the rain. Yes, very good. Very good. Anyway, sorry, I digress. Go on. Yeah, so uh, the Lockie Neal was not his normal imposing self, as we'd become to expect this season. No, Ross fact, did a really good job on him. Yeah, in fact, the best midfielder was Jack Steele of St Kilda. Um, and given that Zorko and, and uh, Neal didn't have their normal influence, I think in a way, Chris Fagan should be pretty happy with getting the win because... They found another way to win the game. Berry was good for them. Uh, Harris Andrews, he's a masterful backman, isn't he? And that was Max King's least effective game, but unsurprisingly against the best defender in the competition. Hipwood was great until he came to kicking a goal. Charlie Cameron, something's wrong there, mate. He came off with cramp at one point, Mm. but... Apart from a, a free kick that he got when Ben Long accidentally kicked it out on the full, he he didn't have a say in the game at all. This is a player who, in the first part of the season, was as dynamic as any small forward in the competition, and you couldn't speak highly enough of his contribution, but he needs to find a spark. Um, Lincoln McCarthy was good early, but quiet. And in fact, if you look along the Brisbane team... It, I would say that their two best players were Harris Andrews and Gardner. I thought Gardner played a great game and was instrumental in them hanging on for the victory. St Kilda had their opportunities, but um, fair play, they wouldn't have had those opportunities to win the game had Brisbane had their kicking boots on. Now, I want to comment about something that really became evident in this game, but has happened all weekend. You know, the AFL are kidding themselves, Rowan. They're a bit, it's a bit of an embarrassment, actually. Five weeks into the season or thereabouts, we get this new interpretation for holding the ball that made it so red hot as to become almost um, a, a lottery when you got the ball. Now, the to sort of bring it back to normality... They've gone too far. You could not get a holding the ball in this game for love nor money. And I'm talking both teams. Mm. You know, uh, Rowan Marshall was caught dead set 
holding the ball, 20 metres out from the Brisbane goal. No, the, um, no help from the umpire. Incident after incident, players were just holding the ball, and that doesn't make for good football. The players quickly adjust, and they knew that there was no need to get rid of the ball, and it's gone on all weekend. Now, if the AFL thinks that we believe that there's not directives given to umpires to change the interpretations, then they're treating us for fools. And the problem is they have not got the balance right this year. In fact, embarrassingly wrong. Yeah, I I, I tend to agree. I certainly noticed that today. Uh, Just quickly, quick response, but uh, I'm looking at the ladder as we speak. Brisbane in second spot. They're obviously um, finals bound. I'm looking at the Saints. They're sixth but they are two games inside the eight. Are you confident they have booked their finals berth? Um, yeah, I, look, they play Melbourne next week. They'd have to win that. They still play Hawthorne. And they get GWS at the end of the year. And if GWS are not in the frame for a finals berth, that's a pretty dramatic fall from grace for a team that was runners-up and you might find a lot of youngsters being played and a lot of dispassionate senior players waiting for the end of the season that couldn't come quick enough. So GWS last round might not be a bad encounter. Mm. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, my money would still be on the making it, I think, because uh, as much because I, I don't necessarily rate the potential replacements for them inside the eight, yeah, and outside teams. the eight. So, you know, they're a decent team, so they've got every reason to make it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I agree. All right, uh, that is the second game on Sunday. Let's talk about the last one on the menu. Okay, well, West Coast have been in uh, terrific form and I don't think many people expected their game against GWS to finish in anything other than a very comfortable win, particularly not at quarter time in this game when the scores were West Coast, four goals, 3-27, GWS, one behind. But that's not how it transpired. In the end, a close shave for the Eagles. Only 12-point victors, nine goals, seven, 61, to, it has to be said, a plucky GWS, seven, seven, 49. So seven goals to the Giants, just five to West Coast after quarter time. Goal kickers, three to Darling, two to Archie for the victors. And the only multiple goal kicker for GWS was the debutant, Riccardi. And uh, pretty impressive he was as well. In fact, uh, in some best lists, he was named among their top two or three players. So uh, one ray of light there for the Giants. But um, I don't know if West Coast just took their foot off the gas a little bit here or GWS really lifted, a bit of both, I'd say, but they were absolutely dominant in that first term, none other than Nick Natanui. God, when that man's on, he is just a, a one-man wrecking crew. First quarter, he had eight disposals, and remember, you're talking about a guy that doesn't tend to win that much of the footy. Eight disposals in a quarter for Nick Nat, six clearances. Uh, He was doing it all and um, giving poor mummy an absolute pasting. I think Gaff had seven touches in that opening term. Um, They were dominant in those centre bounce setups. Uh, GWS still winning a fair bit of the ball on the outside of the contest. 
And their pressure in the forward line was pretty good too. They did quite well to lock the ball in there after that first quarter barrage. And gradually, the wheel began to turn. So uh, back to... Uh, oh, they'd peg back the margin just a tiny bit at halftime. Uh, again, uh, West Coast three goals to two at three-quarter time. So 31-point gap still at three-quarter time. But uh, the Giants came with a rush at the end. They were... Uh, had the game gone another five minutes, who knows how it would have finished. Four goals to just a single solitary goal for the Eagles in that last quarter. They get the points, though. They get their, what is it, I think, eighth win on the trot. And uh, certainly the flag favourite at this stage. GWS, well, you have to wonder, uh, there's still a finals chance, but they're going to have to play better than that again, as in, you know, as, as big an improvement as that was on last week's. Pretty insipid effort. They're in a three-way battle with uh, Carlton and Melbourne, each on six wins and six losses. Collingwood half a game ahead in eighth spot on the ladder. Um, it's going to be hard work for the Giants to even reach finals this season, let alone have any sort of hope of avenging that grand final defeat last year, finally. Yeah, huge fall from uh, what is normally the pouncing position of being a runner-up for a young developing side, which in terms of premiership aspirations, GWS has been. So, you know, that appearance in the grand final was supposed to be the platform to their first premiership. And that assault is not happening this season. Sure, it is a season like no other, but all 18 teams have had to adjust to some new normal and their adjustment has been less impressive, slower than would be expected. All that being said, after quarter time, at quarter time, you could have rightly thought that this was going to be the slaughter job that puts an absolute, you know, knife in the back of GWS and ends their season good and proper because so dominant was Nick Natanui in that centre ruck contest with Mumford. Let's be honest. After a quarter time, Rowan, he wasn't getting any younger, any taller, any quicker, or jumping any higher. Mm. So the die was cast for further domination, but uh, slowly but surely, GWS were good to their word in terms of applying pressure. And I, I, I have a feeling that both teams sort of played the game out with, uh, with the end purpose achieved. GWS to pick up after five very poor quarters of football when you count the game against Sydney, pick up that appetite for the contest again and at least become a competitive side against a good team, uh, objective achieved. And for West Coast, four points, put them in the bank, do it, Ross Lyon, bank them and move on. And that's uh, objective achieved. So both teams did what they needed to do. I think the Giants will look at their draw and, and still give themselves a decent chance. So they've got uh, Freo coming up next week in Perth. They've then got Carlton at Metricon. They've got Adelaide at Adelaide. They've got Melbourne at the Gabba and their last game against the Saints. So they would give themselves a reasonable chance, I would suggest, in well, probably all those games, to be honest. Well, it starts next week, doesn't it? it? Against Frio, is that next week? Yeah. Frio, uh, a tough nut to crack over there. We know that. 
And if they don't crack that nut, their season's done, mate. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, certainly a must win. Uh, all right. That is all eight games played thus far in round 13. Uh, what happened to the ninth, you ask? Well, it's on Monday night and we're going to preview it right now. On Footyology Previews with Punch. Final game of round 13 comes on Monday evening. It is between, at the Gabba, between Collingwood and North Melbourne. And a host of changes for the injury-plagued Magpies, but actually three of their five changes are unforced. So, out of a side, injured, Ben Reid. We may have seen the last of poor old Ben. Out of a side, injured, Brody Majacek. Omitted is Callum Brown, Lyndon Dunn and Rupert Wills. Coming into the lineup, Chris Main, Flynn Appleby, Jordan Roughhead, Levi Greenwood. Been a while since we saw him. And Mason Cox. Been a while since we saw him as well. Two changes for the Kangaroos. Coming into the lineup, Paul Ahern. And Robbie Tarrant, they've certainly missed him in defence. Out injured is Will Walker and omitted is Sam Durden. Well, a bit of the uh, case of the walking wounded, these two sides. Finally, of course, Zeebel and Cunnington haven't been part of the Ruse equation for a long, long time. Uh, what do you think is going to happen in this one? Oh, gee, I mean, really, Collingwood should win it because their midfield even though not at full strength, does on paper run a lot deeper than North Melbourne's. But their forward line has been decimated. This is sort of, you know, the the ins for Collingwood readers, like a, a rogues gallery of deposed former footballers who had sort of done their dash. I mean, Mason Cox seemingly was on the outer. Levi Greenwood, I mean, he's been, he had an injury, but I, I didn't even hear him in any discussions of coming back into the team, certainly this week. Is this a shock to you that Levi Greenwood's in? Um, well, I'd forgotten he existed, to be perfectly honest. Um, Something like that. I, I get what you're saying. I mean, the forward setup looks like a, uh, a convention for players with Elliot in their name or displaced Ruckman with Will Hoskin, Elliot in the forward flank, Jamie Elliot in the pocket and the two key position forwards, Darcy Cameron and Mason Cox. I'm sure I like the look of that one much. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Uh, gee, they better hope it's not a wet night because I don't think Darcy Cameron and Cox are going to do very well in the rain. No. Uh, not suggesting that it will be. Oh, can North Melbourne win? Do they know how to win still? They won against Adelaide, but so has everybody and so could teams that aren't in the AFL potentially. I'm tipping Collingwood because I just don't think North know how to win. Well, they gave it a pretty decent uh, shot last week against Brisbane. Only finished one point adrift in the end, but having said... Yeah, no, well, having said that, I mean, the, the Pies, look, I mean, they've been shot to ribbons, really, by injuries as much as anything. Although, having said that, they they were pretty unimpressive anyway in that uh, near-10-goal loss to Melbourne last week and fairly unimpressive in two 
reasonably narrow wins before that against the hardly mighty Adelaide and Sydney. So they're just going, really. Um, and Melbourne didn't exactly frank that form, did they? No, they didn't. So, yeah, you're really wondering if all the injuries have finally sort of taken a toll on the pies. In fact, the more I look at that sort of last place in the top eight, I'm thinking, is it going to be, you know, which side is the least worst almost as much as uh, which is the best, um, unless they can improve on that form a bit. But, look, that said, they have got a history of sort of grinding out a win against the odds, Um yeah, it doesn't do them any any favours uh, losing uh, my check particularly this week uh, and Reed. So yeah, I mean, hence two Ruckman occupying key forward posts. Um, I think the Roos will push them actually, but uh, I will go for the Pies. And uh, look, nothing other than I've got a lot of respect for their fighting qualities and their place in the eight is uh, definitely on the line. They'll in fact they'll lose it if they lose the game. So uh, that's enough for me to suggest they'll win, but I don't think by very much. What are, what are you saying with this one? Yeah, well, Collingwood by default. Okay. Uh, what does that margin look like, a default margin? 17 points. Okay. All right. Uh, that is our preview of the remaining game in round 13. And that is the end of our show. Thanks for listening. Quick shout out to our wonderful sponsors once again, Finey. You know, because we've been doing the show for an hour and a bit, that only makes me more desirous of a Andrew's hamburger, doesn't it? Because I'm that much hungrier. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. There's delivery services that can put you in an Andrew hamburger, an Andrew's hamburger in close proximity, you know, can make you a Andrew's hamburger for dinner if you're within the five Ks, I guess. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, you draw the circle and build us to the stars, West Point Properties, Nick's Bartels, in the city southeast Melbourne. And of course, when you think Nick's Bartels, think West Point Properties, and think maximizing the value of your land. Absolutely. Wonderful sponsors, both of them. Uh, you're a wonderful audience. Thanks for uh, having a listen. Please visit our Patreon page and become an official Footyology patron. And make sure you check out the website this week. Uh, we've got some really good stuff uh, scheduled to run. In fact, I've been zipping through a lot of it today. So uh, Martin Flanagan, uh, making uh, or writing his second piece for Footyology. Francis Leach will be back talking about music. Uh, we've got Shelley Ware talking uh, about some fairly serious uh, issues accompanying Indigenous Round. All our regulars will be there. And this podcast will be there as well. And we will be returning on Thursday to give you a wrap-up of that Monday night game and preview round 14 in full thanks to your company everyone we'll see you next time